Listener Production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. This is part two of Peter's conversation with long-time tour promoter and now chairman of Live Nation Australasia, Michael Koppel. In this episode, Peter and Michael talk about the new wave of music festivals and the rise of the global touring deal for artists. It's touring with bigger deals on a bigger scale. You you would know about this, but I I discovered in Sydney... um uh, a, a, less than a month ago, a, a, a Saturday night event that looked to me that, that it was the size of World War Two called DEFCON. Mm-hmm. Is that run by a small organisation or a large one? Um, it, it was I, imported. I, that's what I understood. Um, it's it's an event of a style that's been done a lot through Europe and increasingly through North America. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon because there is a generation into EDM of that style and other styles. And, you know, we did the uh, last tour of Swedish House Mafia mm. and drew 40,000 people in Sydney. I've promoted um, Daft Punk and had 35,000 people in Sydney. You you wouldn't think the mainstream audience would know who those groups are. Yeah. But there is an audience for them. And those sort of events do really well. And and is that your intent? I mean, that world is is within the 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 embrace now of your business. Um, it is. I mean, we we uh, we own a uh, a festival called uh, Electric Daisy, which plays in Vegas over three nights uh, once a year and does one hundred and fifty thousand people a night. And it's all EDM DJ based music. There's not a live instrument in sight. And we uh, have started doing that successfully in other markets like the UK and Japan and Brazil and so forth. So we have an element of Live Nation that, that works in that, in that area. I mean, the, the Stereosonic Festival, which was owned by some friends of mine, was sold to SFX for $75 million. And that was based on five years of operation in Australia. And that's... I've watched the evolution of those festivals. Some of them... I mean, there's some good ones. Byron Bay's a good one. Splendor in the Grass, which I know you guys are, are, are well into, in, involved in. Uh, but the others do come and go a bit, don't they? Well, the audiences come and go, and, and, and it's very. I mean, you know, it's interesting because for a period of time, the festival business was was taking away the bread and butter of the of the headline show promoter, because Big Day Out and Stereosonic and Future Music and Soundwave were all two to 300,000 ticket festivals. So 1.2 million tickets a year, let's say, were going to festivals that weren't going to see headline acts. And artists that I work with, like Metallica or the Chili Peppers and so on, were playing those festivals and then not coming back to Australia on the same touring cycle. So instead of seeing a group once every three to five years, you see one every eight to ten years. And and they're getting well enough paid for that festival appearance not to have to come back. Well, the economics work really well. They don't have to tour production. You know, it's only two or three weeks. It's often in the summertime when there are other markets in the Northern Hemisphere that are closed off because of weather and other reasons. So who if someone offers you five or six million dollars to spend three weeks in the sunshine in Australia, would you say no? 
depends on how much you're going to pay me, Michael. What, for you, are the major changes then that you've seen in the last 10 years that, that reflect back into the, the decision you made to, to merge? What, is it the cost of the artists? Is it the, the, the ticketing systems that now evolve? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a battle of the giants. I don't, I don't think it's possible to be uh, an indie promoter um, with all due deference to, to Michaels, Chug and Gadinsky who persist in that. Uh, I think the, the world is closing down. What our company is doing as a very active strategy is going to artists that they feel have got the potential to be major headliners and offering them a lot of money for a lot of shows. Mm. So Globally. Globally. Mm. So you say to, I mean, mm. for example, The Weekend, who we're touring, was an artist that was identified by one of our North American promoters, and he went and said, OK, I'll give you guys $40 million for 60 shows. It takes the, the debate about who to work with in Australia or the UK or Germany out, off the table. Mm. And, the, you know, there's a, there are a lot of managers to whom it's very appealing to get a cheque from a publicly listed company worth four or five billion dollars that they can commission immediately for the next two years of their artist's career. No, I, 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 I understand. I, I, uh, it frightens me a bit, but I understand. So then the baby boomers are dying, slowly. You know, I don't mean no, no, rudely. They're, they're, they're not, no, they're not dying. I, I think the interesting fact is that um, if you look when I started off and you had a rock act you would get one generation of fans coming along, and that'd be between 15 and 25. And now with certain acts, call it Fleetwood Mac, you know, you get, th or ACDC, you get three or four generations of the same family coming to see them. Right. But, you know, obviously, the older they get, the less frequently they go out, some of them die, they lose interest in music and all the rest of it. But the reality is we've, we've broadened the rock generation from teenagers to 80-year-olds. So do you see new opportunities out there that haven't been exploited yet? I think there are always opportunities. I think that's, that's uh, you know, that's been proven. If you look at the music business and, and see, no matter how big the record labels got, there was room for a smart indie label to start up that could identify a new trend, get in early, speak the language of the creator, sign him, you know, exploit him, so to speak commercially, you know, assist in becoming, reaching a lot a lot larger audience. I think that can happen in the live music scene as well, but I think it would happen probably at club level or, you know, somebody seeing a new genre coming along, getting in early and becoming uh, entrenched before the bigger companies see the same opportunity. Do you want to own clubs yourself? Do you want to... Look, I, I think I think I'm in, in the position where I, I've made a, a career and, and, and life choice that I want to work with the people I enjoy working with. I don't want to travel the world doing the dog and pony show and saying to the 25-year-old agent, hey, I'm the right guy for your client because I can't do it credibly anymore. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks and this is part two of his conversation with longtime tour promoter Michael Koppel. In a moment, Peter and Michael look at the differences in touring between then and now. A lot of the big artists touring in the 80s are still touring, but how they do it now is very different. For new artists, though, the chance to achieve longevity is very different. Any regrets, Michael? Uh, only episodic regrets. There are individual decisions I could have made that it would have, I would have liked to have done differently in retrospect, but they're more 
I've had more wins than losses, you know, and no one has 100% of wins. And what are the highs? What are, what are the... What are the best things that you've um, Look, I think the best things that I've, I've done are, are just working with people who whose talents I have so much admiration for and whose successes I've been able to share. And, you know, when, when you do shows with you too and, you know, you take them from uh, a band that no one knew about to they're playing 75 to 100,000 people a night in stadiums. When you work with Pink, who on the first tour I lost a lot of money, but now as we speak, is selling hundreds of thousands of tickets for our upcoming tour and has set records in the last two tours that she's had in Australia. When you work with Adele, who did so few shows worldwide, we had nine shows that sold 700,000 tickets and they were just stellar experiences. And and the the relationship between the performer and the promoter remains strong? No, it's not what it was. And the reason it's not what it was is... is the size of the entourages and, the, and the, the amount of cotton wool between the artist and the real world. When I first toured with you 2 in 1984, when we played like five sold-out nights at Sydney Entertainment Centre, there were 14 people in the touring party. Last time I worked, there were 140. Jeez. And there were more people in the, in the video crew following them round than there had been the whole tour party in 1984. And, and again, the, those... For a band of that level, of that stature, there is also that journey of deciding if they've still got the audience that can justify 130, 40 people. Well, it's more if they've got the desire to do it. You know, I, I think I think it's interesting because you look at the generation of um, of rock artists like the Stones and McCartney and the Who and Roger Waters who have had 50-year careers and they're still performing and they still want to perform. Now, part of that, I think, is is the fact that if you've been doing something all your life, you don't want to give it up. And the other part of it is they haven't got another life to relate to. So if they give that up, it's like going into retirement and at that point, you've got to reinvent yourself. Hmm. You know, plus, which I, th- I think fame and adulation is the most addictive drug in the world. And it's very hard to give up. But is there another layer coming up that would that, that's going to get to that? I mean, uh, when you talk about Pink, you know, I mean, an uh, incredibly talented woman and well managed by Roger, uh, another Australian, and that is another generation. She's certainly not the Rolling Stones, or but that, those layers that that arrive, there's not many of them. Are they? I mean, they're, they're not coming down the corridor with hit records everywhere anymore. Um, I, I think there's a lot of short-term thinking in the music business. Um, I think that uh, the artists who have built long-term careers had long-term management in general. So if you had a Roger Davies connected with Tina Turner, you had a Paul McGuinness connected with Hugh too, mm. Gary Kerfurst and the Talking Heads, um, they didn't think of one touring cycle, one album cycle, then I could get fired, so let's maximise the turnover and what I can commission in the short term. They thought about, how do I give my client a 20 or 30 or 40 year career if they want to do it? I don't think that's happening with uh, with newer acts. Maybe it's not possible. Maybe it, we've reached a stage where everything's so disposable and so accessible that there's no value to it and someone can be a huge star. One Direction can sell out stadiums and then two or three years later can't sell out arenas. Mm. 
and and there's nothing for them till the 15 or 20 year reunion comes along take that minus one one very significant one <laughs> just a bit is there uh, um, is there a sense you have of uh, what I would call a bucket list of things that you haven't got your hands on but you want to um, no, not really a bucket list. Uh, I mean, I, I reached a point, I think, where I'm very happy working with the, the major clients that I have. If there's something in particular I fancy, I'll go and have a run at it. But I don't want to do the day-to-day business. It, it becomes... Uh, it's become a very difficult business. It's become very challenging. It's become very nasty because people are now fighting over the last cent in every dollar. And there used to be more than enough to go around. Everyone was very happy with it. Are you still hungry? Um, I'm still energised by the chase. I'm still energised by the, the, the cut and thrust of the negotiation. I think I can recognise major contenders that, as they come along and pursue them. But I don't think I am driven or want to spend 120 hours a week working. And do you see people in the business that that the new generations that are astute? The Paul, Paul Pitico, the guys that... Were... Oh, look, very much so. I mean, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to now be in business with Paul and Jess of Secret Sounds who have built Splendour into a Tier 1 festival worldwide and are doing the same with the Falls festivals and hopefully with other projects that we're involved with that are coming to market the next year. And I think that, that what they've done, uh, I have a lot of admiration from because they started with no foothold in the industry and they've become major players, and you've got to admire that. Do you keep your eyes, as Live Nation or otherwise, on what's going on in Australia as to whether or not there's, there's a globalness to any of this as it evolves? Um, a little bit less so on the... Tell me the truth, mate. No, 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 a little bit less so on the talent side because we're not directly related with booking or managing Australian artists. Um, and, I, and I have to say it is difficult to get the attention of people until an Australian artist actually makes a splash, as, say, Flume has done or as Lord has done as a New Zealand artist mm. internationally. And then suddenly, why didn't you tell us about this? Mm. Well, we tried to, but you weren't interested. And there's Flume pretty much unmanaged. No, Flume, Flume was a manager, but he, he's managed to break into an arena-sized act in North America under everyone's radar. And and uh, without necessarily a producer, really. I mean, it's, it's him, isn't it? Mm. His dad's an accountant. <laughs> I think he needs an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> I risked my case. So, um, would you do it again? If you had, if you, if imagine you were 18, 19, 20 and you were finishing that law degree anymore, what do you do? Um, I, I certainly don't regret the way my life has, has ta- where my life has taken me. I, I, uh, uh, I'm never bored. <laughs> I never have things that that I've got to think about. What do I do next? Because there's always a list that uh, yeah, that's right. There's an un- flows unful- past the horizon. I, I call it the unfulfilled list. That's right. Yes, the unobtainable list. Yeah. So I no, I don't think so. If if, if I could see my life, you know, played in front of me, and I was nineteen, I was well, I was more like twenty six, twenty seven. If I was twenty seven again, and I had to make the decision. There was nothing that would have taken me in a different direction. I've had, I've had fantastic luck in my personal life. I've got. Most best wife I could have ever married, oh, and four great kids, and they've put up with me not being there uh, a lot of the time. When especially the older two were growing up, 
which I recognise, but, you know, I've got a wonderful family life, great friends. I've worked too hard, but I've got a lot of material advancement to show for it. So, so you, do, you do it again? Uh, I do it again, but smarter. Really? I, I, I've, I've learnt lessons that I could have eased my, my passage by being uh, more adept. I wasn't trained in business. So the thing is, I thought the easiest thing something is to be doing, to go and do it yourself, right? But I've learned from my peers that if something needs to be doing, go get somebody else to do it for you. Michael, you know, none of us, when we start, you can't be 21 and trained in business. Mm. I mean, too much of it's lessons, lessons on the road. I mm. mean, I would have thought as they trashed the Regent Theatre that that might have been a significant lesson of what to do next time. You know the significant lesson we learnt was? Higher security. <laughs> More security. <laughs> no, we didn't have any. In those, oh, da- in those days... You had none. In those days, constant security didn't exist. I didn't know that. Well, then I'll shut up because, yes, that would have been a very significant... But you had it from then on, I presume, and crash barriers. We did. Uh, And then when when people started stage diving, uh, the venues insisted on becoming as draconian as they've become. It is a... I see it as a constant evolution. I think change is good, Mm. um, but I, I, I... I think that people like you, faced with starting it all over again, would succeed whatever happened. I, I think there's got to be love of music to start with, Michael. I, I think that's the motivator that comes along, but the interesting thing I've always found at most music industry functions, live or, or record industry, is the last thing those people want to hear is music playing when they're trying to talk to somebody. <laughs> you sound like you're running a corporate convention. No, I, I think that's the thing. It's the antithesis. I, I, I go home and listen to music to relax. Yeah. I think very few people in the business do that nowadays. They do anything else. They'll watch sport. They'll watch TV. They'll open a bottle of wine. Well, I'll, I'll do that too. But uh, I will listen to music to relax, and I still do. And I still actually go out and buy CDs. Do you think... I'm, I'm off the subject here, but do you think that your audience... Uh, recognises new music as it comes along? Do they Are they Spotifying and finding new music or not? I think, I think the whole rise of social media has been fascinating because you can actually get an insight into what people are listening to. You can look at Spotify streams. You can look at the character of the streams, how many times it's just the one song, how many times it's the album. Mm. You look at the iTunes charts. I think it's, it's you know, we used to think that a band was popular because they'd sold 30,000 albums and they had a couple of songs that had been given strong airplay on Osterio or Triple M or whoever it was. But now we can actually drill down into who's listening to what, what's their demographic, what's their age group, where do they live. I think it's fascinating. I, I think uh, the way that the, the data is becoming available to inform your decisions as a promoter is, is a huge development. Would you have still toured Leo Kotke if you'd had that information? I doubt if Leo's streaming figures would have been any, of no. any significance, but, but having the record stores at that time, there were some albums of his that sold phenomenally and steadily, so we knew that we'd fill Dallas Brooks Hall if we brought him to Melbourne. There was, a, there was an old mate of mine in Sydney, Philip Walker, who, who once rang me and said, I'm going to tour B.B. King. And I... I 
with all the knowledge in the world, went, you idiot, what are you going to do that for? How many records has he sold? Mm-hmm. I think at the time he was somehow, the, he was on Warner Brothers on a small label and he'd sold 5,000 albums. And uh, uh, three months later he'd sold out three Horton Pavilions. <laughs> it was a big lesson in the, the underlying... Yeah. Uh, fan base that goes on that yeah. don't necessarily go out and buy BB King's new album. Yeah. Had, they've had his records for years, and, yeah. they, and if they haven't seen him, they want to go. Very, it's a th- that's that's the bit about social media that that I think is the opportunity as well. I think that that allows you to have a much broader base globally. You, uh-huh. you could, you, you know, this whole thing we talk about with Flume is that really he didn't have to leave town to. Um, to build that base in other parts of the world. Look, I, I think it's fascinating. You can record a, a album that sells, generates millions of dollars of revenue, whether it's streaming or sales, in your bedroom. You know, you can decide to tour in a wig and a mask, as Sierra's doing. Yeah. You know, the, the rules have gone out the window to some degree. Yeah. Right. That's probably the end of this discussion, Michael. Congratulations on the Order of Australia. Thank you. A seriously deserved recognition. In the next episode, Peter Ricks speaks to a man of many, many talents, John Woodruff. From agent to manager to record company owner to magazine publisher and more. From starting out in Adelaide with the Angels through to Savage Garden taking on the world, Woodruff's story is one of many twists and turns. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Listener.